0: Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by BetDSI. Hey, you're looking for a place to bet on NFL and NCAA football? BetDSI is the industry leader in football betting and the perfect sportsbook for both novice and professional bettors alike. New members get a 100% bonus match. When you use the promo code SEATS100, yeah, that's SEATS100 at BetDSI.com. That's more than double your money to help start winning today. Once again, BetDSI.com promo code SEATS100 and get your limited time 100% bonus offer when you deposit today. Now, here's our show.
1: You are looking live at Snowswept Shea Stadium in New York, where the high flying Jets play host to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and there is a controversy. Half of the field remains covered right now. The Jets insist it'll be clear in time for the kickoff. We are not so sure, but this field is going to be a problem from the Buccaneers who have never played in conditions like this in December. Also, live, you are looking at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, where the Cardinals take on the Washington Redskins in a battle of playoff contenders. No snow, but it is very cold in St. Louis, and that field is frozen. And moving north into Wisconsin, we are now live at beautiful Lambeau Field in Green Bay, where the rejuvenated Packers with a 4-1 record take on the slumping Detroit Lions. The prediction, sunny skies in Green Bay. One reason the St. Louis Cardinals have a winning record is because of their new defensive coach, Floyd Peters. I'll be taking a look at what he's done to put more muscle in a defense that last year was one of the worst in the NFL. The Green Bay Packers are on their way to the best start since their Super Bowl years. I'll be talking about their game against the Lions today and other action around the NFL. Phyllis? Jimmy, last season, after a poor start, the New York Jets caught fire and made the playoffs for the first time in 12 years, and they appear to be a cinch for a playoff berth again this season. I'll be looking at the man who gets the most credit for the Jets' dramatic turnaround, quarterback Richard Todd. We'll have all that and more on the NFL Today. the nfl today is sponsored by the 1983 Volkswagens.
0: nothing else is a volkswagen
1: and by true value hardware stores true value more than just a name it's our way of doing business now, here's Brent Musburger. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the NFL today. Feels like football here in New York. Let me assure you of that.
0: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, you are listening live. Well, not really live, uh, somehow podcasted or streamed or... download it or whatever, but uh, we appreciate it. Hi there. My name is Tim Hanlon and you uh, have found Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. We appreciate it. And uh, make no mistake, you uh, know what we're in for this week. We're going to talk about perhaps one of the uh, foundational uh, television programs in and around professional television sports, that being the NFL Today on CBS Yes, a show that we know today and, uh, and uh, watch regularly to get us set for the various uh, now AFC games that uh, CBS has the exclusive uh, Sunday window for, for the NFL. But uh, back in the day, in the 1970s, uh, the uh, retooling of what was a much more modest uh, pregame setup by CBS a longtime broadcaster of NFL football games, dating all the way back to, I think it was 1961, and various, uh, you know, more traditional sort of pre-recorded uh, kinds of uh, uh, pre-game setups for various NFL broadcasts on the weekends. 1974, CBS abandoned um, the uh, pre-recorded sort of format, and um, uh, I think it was called Pro Football Report back in the day. Uh, for something more uh, fresh, shall we say? It became a more live and wraparound style program. And they called it, for at least that 1974 season, the NFL on CBS. Uh, it was a half hour, and um, it was much more devoted to kind of closer to real time game time information, uh, kind of setting up with a half hour's notice what was going to go on uh, in that uh, single header or double header uh, that was to await the uh, national fans on CBS that. Uh, that Sunday. That, of course, was the NFC uh, games package that CBS had for such a long period of time. But it really broke ground, as we're going to get into our conversation this week with our guest, uh, Rich Podolsky. He, uh, a writer on this uh, newer version. In 1975, it was renamed the NFL Today. Now, that was also its name a couple of different times during the 60s and 70s, back and forth. the, The names kept changing and and the formats got, uh, kept getting tweaked, but make no mistake, in 1975, the signature imprint that truly took this broadcast and all of sports uh, pregame shows, for that matter, uh, to the complete next level. Uh, and that, uh, is sort of evidenced in that clip from 1982, gives you a sense of how that format ran and the people involved. It became much more of a lifestyle and entertainment kind of approach. With four major personalities, all bringing their own sort of perspectives and uh, unique skill sets to the mix to create, frankly, something that became uh, for most people on Sundays, uh, dare I say this (laughs) for fans of the NBC uh, AFC package pregame show that they had, uh, was really kind of must see TV for any NFL sports fan. Um, People such as. Brent Musburger, um, obviously well-known. You uh, kids today know him as the uh, voice of v uh the uh, sports betting media company. Uh, perhaps you may remember him from uh, calling Rose Bowl games and lots of different things for ABC Sports. Well, before that, kids, Brent Musburger was a mainstay at CBS Sports, uh, calling all kinds of games in action, NBA games, NFL games, and that kind of stuff. But uh, really got his start as a uh, sportscaster and anchorman for uh, two CBS owned and operated stations, one WBBM in Chicago and the other KCBS television in Los Angeles, uh, before he went to CBS Network and was tapped to be the host of this newfangled, newly rechristened NFL Today in 1975 and extraordinary, right? Just kind of built for the job. Uh, born into it, if you will, Brent Musburger was a sportscaster's sportscaster and the chief ringleader, frankly, for three other uh, amongst three other personalities that, uh, you know, in many cases sort of (laughs) kind of needed a little direction once in a while. One of which was a guy by the name of Jimmy the Greek Snyder, Uh, a, uh, a, a character, to say the least, a gambler through and through and uh, was, frankly, the avatar for what is now, you kids today, uh, the sort of uh, uh, now blending of, of betting with pro sports. Now, you have to remember, back in the 1970s, there was sort of this winking and nodding, uh, you know, uh, admission, not admission, that gambling was part of sort of the sports culture and NFL games uh, specifically. Um, but, of course, it was never legal, in any way, shape, or form, except in Las Vegas. Uh, but that didn't stop odds makers and various personalities, uh, no more uh, larger than life than this Jimmy the Greek Snyder character, who uh, literally brought sort of that sort of betting, if you will, sensibilities. Frankly, it's how I learned the word when I was growing up the word intangibles. Uh, if you remember Jimmy the Greek, when he would uh, go through that sort of tote board of like what to look for with Brent as they went through game by game, what to look for and getting that sort of quote unquote betting edge. There's always that last thing called intangibles. I never knew what the hell that meant, uh, but I soon learned it was all those sort of things that uh, didn't neatly fit onto uh, either offensive or defensive stats and that kind of stuff. Uh, another person, and a high wattage, high voltage one at that, was uh, not only somebody not from the realm of sports, but just an absolute a uh, gorgeous distraction and attraction uh, and a former Miss America at that, her name, Phyllis George. Did she know much about sports? No, not really. Football? Certainly not. Uh, but she was uh, a breath of fresh air and a wonderful balance uh, to these uh, uh, sports guys, one a sports sportscaster, one a sort of a betting guy. Uh, and she brought the sort of element of features, uh, and softer side of of the game and and frankly made the show a lot more accessible to uh to to women and people more casually uh attracted to the NFL. Um and a and a wonderful um uh personality in her own right. Uh now she left for a couple of years replaced by another gorgeous uh, uh woman and and Miss America herself, Jane Kennedy. We get into that story with Rich, too. But then Phyllis came back in 1980 and uh, and sort of uh, rode along with the show for, for years thereafter. Um, but uh, make no mistake, she was certainly part of the mix as well. And last but certainly not least, an actual gosh darn football player, somebody who actually had experience on the field and probably the quietest, uh, most um, uh, stable of all of these personalities, the glue, if you will, of the show, uh, and somebody probably, frankly, with the most uh, insightful understanding of the game itself, Irv Cross, former Philadelphia Eagle standout, pro football Hall of Famer he, and um, who, uh, after the NFL today, uh, went on to a uh, a stellar career in a collegiate athletics administration. But uh, Irv Cross, I think, sort of the unsung hero of this, shall we call them fearsome foursome of this NFL today, they reigned for a good 10, almost 15 years, and truly uh, recast what, uh, the idea of a pregame show should look like. And, uh, you heard the excitement in Brent Musburger's voice, you know, going live, uh, to each, uh, individual game and getting people set up. It became an event and make no mistake, as we'll get into our conversation with Rich in just a few moments, uh, not everybody got, everybody got along with each other, uh, at every single moment of, of, uh, uh, of those broadcasts, um, because these were all, you know, strong personalities. But that's what made it watchable television. That's what it made, made it a must see kind of uh, a thing. You never kind of really knew what was going to happen, how combustible it might be. Uh, and um, for those who lived through it in the 1970s and early 1980s, the NFL Today on CBS was the pregame show to watch. And We're going to get into the history, the story of it with one of its head writers, uh, and frankly, just a wealth of knowledge. I mean, this guy knows everything and then some, some amazing tidbits. Uh, Rich Podolsky. And the book, it's coming out next week, folks. Get your pre-order now or uh, or order it now, depending on when you're listening. It's called, well, you could probably imagine, You Are Looking Live, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting. This is a fun conversation. You're going to learn So much, get your pens and paper ready because there's going to be so many tidbits that you've never heard of before. And this is, it's only scratching the surface of what's in store for you when you get this book. Our conversation with Rich Podolsky coming up in one and a half moments time. You will enjoy this. Uh, Let's see, how about a sponsor this week? Let's go with, uh, all right, let's go to Southwest Missouri, shall we? Hey, Judd, it's your turn. Judd Lasher, here you go. It's 417 Helmets collectible helmets and more at 417helmets.com. That's 417helmets.com. And uh, like the name implies, friends, you've got to check out this site, 417helmets.com. It is the treasure trove of all treasure troves. Many helmets of football uh, from all kinds of pro leagues, both current and, of course, in glorious past we're talking World Football League. We're talking United States Football League. We're talking United Football League. We're talking all kinds of of, of franchises, uh, current and past, uh, and we're talking also collegiate of all shapes and sizes, whether they be uh, football bowl uh, ch- uh, series or what, what is that division, whatever Division One is called, the bowl. The bowl, championship, no, the bowl championship series or the, the I, whatever division, two divisions, whatever division they're in. I can't even keep up with them anymore. The bowl championship division. That's what it is. Or the, whatever it is, you you're yelling in your devices. You know what it is. There are, I'm telling you, there are teams uh, out there that you even know existed. Slippery Rock State, whatever. They're all there for you to purchase. You're going to just fall in love with them once you go to 417helmets.com. And of course- you're going to stick around and you're going to buy more stuff while you're there when you use the promo code for 10% off. And that's good seats. The promo code is good seats at 417helmets.com. Hey, look, and if for whatever reason, you can't even find something that you think you're interested in, a team or you know from a league that uh, you know might be interesting to you, you can have one made custom. And frankly, it doesn't even have to be a football team. It can be another sports team, or it could be your company logo, or it could be something else that you devise. Judd can make anything you want in a mini custom helmet kind of fashion and it's high quality stuff. It's exact same stuff that the uh, the pros wear on their big their big heads, the actual real size ones. So, uh, enjoy the um, uh, the conversation piece that are that is a mini collectible helmet. Once again, for 17 helmetscom promo code goodseats 10% off every stinking purchase. And uh, we thank Judd for his sponsorship of the show. We apologize for our ignorance of what the various divisions of the NCAA are this week. It kind of really doesn't matter, it seems, because the NCAA is certainly waning in its uh, influence. We'll see what happens in the next year or two. But whatever. I digress. Let's waste no more time. Enough with this NCAA college game. Let's talk about the NFL. And let's talk about the NFL today. And let's talk about the NFL today on CBS with the author of the great and fascinating and must-get book, You Are Looking Live. Here's our conversation with Rich Podolsky that we had just last week. Sit back. Enjoy. This is a fun one. Here it comes. Enjoy.
1: In 1975, I was uh, covering the Miami Dolphins for the Palm Beach Post. And uh, uh I got a call one day that uh, my parents had been in a car accident and uh, that they were both in the hospital and I had to leave that job I had been covering the dolphins for uh, a few years uh, through their Super Bowl uh, through their second Super Bowl and uh, it was a great job and um, One of the people I got to know real well at the the job was Bino Cook, who was the public relations director at that time. Legendary. Uh, Legendary. The legendary Bino Cook, yes. And um, uh, I I had to leave the job, go back to Philadelphia. Uh, Unfortunately, my father passed away two days later. Uh, It was his third heart attack. Uh, my mother wa- had uh, multiple injuries and was in the hospital for over a month and re- rehabilitating uh, for six months after. And uh, it was basically my job to take care of her since my sister uh, was living in Texas. Um, so that that's uh, where all this started. Uh, I wound up uh, after uh, she was on her own for uh, a little while, I was able to go out and get a job with the Suburban Daily. And I stayed in touch with Bino. Bino was my lifeline. Uh, he had thrilled me with his stories about ABC Sports and about uh, the, the great, great world of college football uh, and uh, the television uh, part of it, uh, how he had Uh, been able to convince ABC Sports to move the Texas-Arkansas game from the first scheduled game of the year until December because he told them that they would play for the national championship, and they did with Nixon presenting uh, the trophy to the winner. Um, So Bino was a a great friend and a great lifeline, and uh, he told me he was uh, going back to uh, public relations, and he was going to take a job with a show called The Superstars, which was created by Dick Button. Now, the Superstars, some of your uh, uh, people uh, fans might remember, was a show that featured star athletes um, who were competing in events that they were not uh, professional in. Uh, for example, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Frazier was, uh, there, uh, among 10 athletes and he ran track and he, uh, did anything but box. Uh, apparently he did not swim very well on that show. Uh, but, um, that, that's the main idea. Pete Rose played tennis things like that. Yeah, we, we, and, actually, uh,
0: we actually had uh, Kyle Rowe Jr. on uh, early, about two years ago. Fantastic uh, story. He's a multi-winner of that show. Uh, soccer player and really, uh, so fascinating stories there. And hopefully we we'll go deeper on that. But that's a, it was a great conversation. I, a fantastic uh, event.
1: Yeah, so Bino, um was doing public relations or, or publicity for that show, which was taped, in florida i wrote wrote rotunda florida which was a housing development there i guess they were trying to sell homes Uh, and uh, he called me uh, i was in philadelphia uh, where i was uh, living with uh, my mother and he called me and said "Uh, barry frank just took over as uh, the new head of cbs sports Uh, barry frank was an executive that worked with Bino and Bino's 10 years at ABC Sports. And he said, I think Barry's gonna hire me to do publicity for CBS. And if that happens, I'm gonna convince Dick Button to hire you uh, to do the publicity job that I had. I said, great, I'd love to get involved in television one way or another. And that happened. He brought me in, Dick Button really had no choice the way Bino presented it. And uh, he hired me, uh, Button was partners with uh, the people at IMG who were producing the show, the superstars. And it was, uh, it was really uh, great fun for me and uh, a terrific job. And uh, I knew uh, a ton of sports writers and I was able to call them and get uh, material uh, done for the show and stories. And I got to meet Don Allmeyer who was a great, great producer. And he went on to become a great executive at both ABC and and NBC uh, in later years. And uh, Olmeyer was producing the superstars. And he was kind enough to let me go in the truck and watch what he did. And then when they got all the tapes back to New York, he allowed me to come into the studio and watch him edit. And in those days, there was no digital. When you edited a piece of tape, you had to guess where it started and then where it ended, and then to go back and forth until you finally got the right uh, parts uh, to start and finish it. It was a tedious process, and Ohmire was a genius at the editing. Uh, in fact, uh, in the book, I, I mentioned that they had a, uh, um, a show called battle of the network stars, which was a takeoff on the superstars, where they had uh, stars from all three networks uh, trying athletic events. And it was kind of a fun show to watch these people uh, try to compete. Um, And Olmeyer opened the show with a helicopter view of uh, three lines of limousines coming from three different directions all meeting at this one uh, uh, battle battleground of the three networks. It was, it was, uh, I think it was Pe- Pepperdine university in Malibu, right? Yeah, it was an amazing opening and, and only B- all uh, was creative enough to come up with it. Um, so th- I got my taste of television. I absolutely loved it and um, I wanted more and um, one day, uh, while I was on the, the job there for about three months, uh, Bino, uh got in touch with me and said, they need a new writer at CBS Sports, and I'm going to convince them to hire you. Now, I had no experience writing anything for television, uh, you know, uh, other than public relations uh, pieces. So uh, uh, one thing led to another. I got the interview, uh, My the, the articles that I sent in in the past were good enough. I had actually uh, won a, a Keystone Award, which was the Pennsylvania Publishers Award for Best Sports Story of the Year, in earlier in the 70s. Um, so I, I had some uh, good things that uh, represented me uh, when the head of communications at CBS Sports was doing the interviewing. And that along with uh, uh, Bino and uh, Mike Pearl uh, was the producer of the NFL today. Uh, we knew each other from uh, Miami and the dolphins and he recommended me as well. And uh, in fact, I wouldn't have to be writing copy for the NFL today. And he said he was fine with it. So uh, I wound up getting the job almost by default and uh, it was an incredible thrill for a guy like me to, to be working on sports television. And that that was June of 1977 when I got to CBS Sports. Now, the NFL Today show that I write about, it, it took a dramatic turn in 1975 when Bob Wessler took over as the head of CBS Sports and he brought in Mike Pearl from WTVGA in Miami to um be the producer and to to put it together,
0: yeah, and what do you
1: want to talk about next?
0: yeah, well, so I mean so much to unpack there, but but yeah, so seventy five ish right obviously, a couple of years before you 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 arrive on the scene, I mean I think uh, it's it's not um unimportant to kind of sort of uh, uh, emphasize just how uh significant a change it was it was it was essentially kind of uh a reinvented pregame show from earlier, shall we say more primitive. Approaches where live became more of the dynamic and a wraparound kind of style, uh, which was th- at that time in seventy five uh, quite um, quite new and fresh, right? And and, and frankly unproven. Well, before nineteen seventy five,
1: the only thing that was live were the games themselves. All the pregame shows were shot uh, days in advance, and all the announcers were middle aged white men and whistlers Um, really vision um, was not only to have a live pregame show but to have tremendous diversity as well. He uh, wanted a three pronged announce team uh, to be co-hosts and in so doing he brought in the first woman ever on a live show that was Phyllis George a former Miss America. And she wound up parting, parting the Red Sea for uh, women broadcasters after her. Uh, he then also brought in Irv Cross to be the first person of color on this type of show. Uh, Irv had previously been the first person of color uh, as a, an analyst on NFL games. And of course, and the third person he had was the incomparable Brent Musburger, who we brought in from uh, the sh- Chicago's WBBM, which was uh, Wessler's previous job for CBS. He was the general manager of the Chicago TV station there, and he was well familiar with how brilliant Musburger was. Um, now, uh, the interesting thing was, it wasn't until a year later that Wessler had the nerve and the gall and the audacity to add to that cast, Jimmy the Greek Snyder, to talk about gambling and to talk around point spreads. Uh, the Greek was already a celebrity uh, going back to the forties. In 1948, he had won a million dollars uh, betting on Harry Truman. Uh, he bet $50,000, which was a, a hell of a lot of money then. Uh, on He bet 50,000 on Truman at 20 to one odds. And uh, when Truman won the election against uh, Governor Dewey of New York, uh, it uh, made uh, national news when Walter Winchell, who was probably the most powerful media person in the country, went on his radio show and said, "Um, Mr. and Mrs. North and South America and all the ships at sea, the big winner besides Harry Truman was a young Greek boy, 29-year-old Jimmy Snyder from Steubenville, Ohio, who won a million dollars betting on Truman. Now, that was the first time anybody in the country had heard of Jimmy the Greek. And the reason he did that, I know I'm going off on a tangent here. No, this is great. But the, the reason he did that was about a month prior to the election, he was shaving and his sister noticed, she said, why are you growing a mustache? Women hate mustaches, it reminds them of Hitler. And he said, oh, that's interesting. And then the next thing he did is he turned around and looked at the front page of the newspaper and there was a big picture of Governor Dewey and all the Greeks saw was Dewey's mustache. And it hit him that, my God, Dewey might lose that because women, uh, more women voted than men. And the next thing he did is he hired three women to go out and do uh, uh, kind of raw kind of research outside the uh, A&P in Steubenville. Uh, And he knew Ohio was a major state uh, as far as the elections go. And he he found out that out of 500 women uh, interviewed that there were only about a hundred that actually liked men with mustaches. Most of the rest of them did not. So uh, he uh, he uh, went out and did a little more research, spent a little more money, confirmed all this, and then he went to New York a Lindy's restaurant, famous for their cheesecake, where Damon Runyon and all the bookies hung out in the 40s. And he wound up betting with three different bookies getting odds anywhere from 17 to 22 to one on Truman. And when I asked him why he took the 17 to one odds, he said, a friend guaranteed me that guy would pay. (laughs) So so it wound up, they all paid. The Greek uh, had an enormous amount of money. I mean, a million dollars then was probably worth about 300 million today. Um, He he blew some of it on oil wells, but then he uh, went out to Las Vegas and opened up some uh, uh, bookie shops, uh, uh, sports betting, which we uh, call today. And uh, he was extremely successful. Uh, And one of the reasons he was so successful is he made the the best numbers in uh, Las Vegas, probably the best numbers in the country, betting numbers, that is, Uh, and A little while after this, when the Kennedys took over in the early 60s, Bobby Kennedy was the attorney general. He went after Sam Giancana and the mafia, had little success actually nailing them, and decided he had to do something, and he wound up uh, getting Jimmy the Greek for uh, talking on the phone across state lines and discussing point spreads. Now, uh, what simply happened was a friend of his from Utah called and wanted to know Jimmy's what Jimmy's opinion would be on the Utah Utah State game. And when Jimmy gave him a, a spread that he thought would be fair, they uh, took a they they arrested him. They took away his gambling license, and uh, he was he was out in the cold and had to find something to make a living. He walked into the Las Vegas Sun. Hank Greenspan was the editor, and uh he convinced Greenspan to let him write a column uh, with his numbers man to man numbers on football and baseball and basketball and uh, the column became so popular it got syndicated in over three hundred newspapers and by the early and mid seventies the Greek was more popular than ever
0: and i and i'm guessing I'm guessing that's how Wessler kind of. Circled on him. I, let me just ask you this, and I know this is before your arrival, but I think it's it's a helpful entree into it, right? But, um, and I don't want to overly focus on on uh, on Jimmy the Greek, but um, it, I'm I'm curious as to as you're working with Wessler when you sort of came in, wh- what did Wessler see in this guy versus say uh, others sort of in the quote unquote gambling uh, uh, realm, and then number two, the controversial move of bringing somebody who's essentially. Legitimizing gambling, obviously legal in in Vegas and Nevada at the time, but nowhere else. Um, That itself was a big deal. The Greek had
1: had moved to Miami. And in Miami, he met Mike Pearl. And Mike Pearl, um, as I mentioned, was a great producer. And he wound up uh, producing the Greek's radio spots. Uh, besides the 300 newspapers that the Greek had the column in, the Greek became so popular, he had a, a, like a five minute radio show that was also syndicated. And he and Mike Pearl got along famously. Pearl had seen what a tremendous, bigger than life character the Greek was, and how no matter where he went, people wanted to talk to him, and they didn't feel like they couldn't say, Hey, Greek, what do you know? Uh, Or what do you think about the Dolphins this week? Uh, The Greek was a tremendously likable guy. And when Mike Pearl came to CBS, uh, the Greek wanted to bring a commercial for El Producto Producto cigars to the NFL today uh, where he would be uh, the spokesperson for it in a 30-second ad. Wessler met him through that ad and realized uh, what a tremendous asset he could be. Wessler wasn't worried about the NFL. The NFL for- forbade any talk about point spreads. Pete Rosell went before Congress that year, and and guaranteed Congress that this wouldn't happen. He he told Congress, "You don't have anything to worry about. Only two percent of our viewers actually bet on the games." <laughs> well, when when Bino Cook heard that, he. Fino said, "Well, if that's true, they all live on my block." <laughs> well, um, uh, the Greek joined the cast in '76, and you you wound up having four people with tremendous personalities, and some of them were very explosive. The show was incredibly, incredibly successful to start with. No, America had never seen anything like this before. Besides going live and besides having all these different uh, personalities and people of color and and a woman for the first time, uh, Wessler had previously said that TV sports had become a male ghetto. And he wanted uh, an opportunity to get, get women involved in the show. And he didn't want them just sitting at home opening beer cans for their husband. He wanted them interested in Phyllis George and her personality profiles got them interested. Uh, The NFL today expanded the audience not only for its own show but for pro football uh, in its entirety and it really helped the NFL overtake baseball as America's number one sport.
0: What's this? Lucy Nicotine. Yes. Well, hey, look, folks, we're all adults here, and some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. And Lucy Nicotine is a company that was created to help nicotine users find a cleaner option and feel better about the ways they consume nicotine. Now, look, I, I'm not a smoker. I've not been a chewing uh, tobacco kind of guy. Uh, we all know that uh, nicotine is absolutely endemic uh, to those uh Activities uh, And uh, you look, if you're looking to evolve, say, from the smoking habit, uh, but recognize that nicotine is, is part of the mix, well, perhaps, Lucy, nicotine uh, is a, a helpful way uh, to evolve from uh, those habits. Their latest product is called Slim Nicotine Pouches, uh, which contain pure synthetic nicotine and provide the same satisfaction that nicotine users expect without any tobacco at all. Uh, Lucy Slim Pouches use the newest technology for synthesizing, he says. Pure nicotine in the lab. None of the tobacco and all of the nicotine satisfaction. They come in three strengths, four, eight, and 12 milligrams, and three exclusive and uh, inviting flavors. Spearmint, mango, and cool cider. So don't compromise when you're choosing your nicotine products. Go with the newest tobacco-free options from Lucy Nicotine. And my listeners can go to lucy.co and use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 20% off your order of Lucy Slim Pouches or any other of the Lucy nicotine products. That's lucy.co and use promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Now, I got to use this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains non-tobacco nicotine and nicotine is an addictive chemical. Thank you, Lucy Nicotine, for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. I think a word you may have mentioned or I'll sort of throw in there, and maybe I'll use this as a segue, as you as you walk in the door to this new cool, and I'm sure high-wattage assignment that you're probably getting very excited and eager for, uh, is the word combustible, right? Because uh, certainly, with those four personalities... Um, uh, I I would argue, and it seemed to me based on my recollections of that show, that there was almost a, an expectation that there would be either friendly or not so friendly, but friction nonetheless, that would drive the, uh, the dynamic of that show regardless. And that must've been a bit intimidating for you. No, not for me. I wasn't, uh, one of the four fighting for airtime.
1: Uh, it was a half-hour show in those days, and there were really only 22 minutes of airtime. And the more popular the show got, uh, the more money some of them got uh, as uh, salaries. And, um, you know, that they started fighting for airtime. And the Greek always felt like he was getting the short end of the stick. Uh, because while they were on the air, actually, even though things were sort of uh, laid out uh, or scripted, um, you might say, Uh, Brent had complete control. If he wanted to throw it to her for another piece of information, or if he wanted to throw it to Phyllis for her point of view, Um, every once in a while he'd say, Greek, how much do you think they'd be favored by? And uh, Greek would get around the point spread thing by saying, oh, a touchdown or maybe a field goal Or he'd say, what does the golfer say when he hits it out of bounds? Oh, yeah, he says four. And that's how they got around the point spread thing. But the Greek always felt like he was the last one Brent would go to. And that eventually led to their big disagreement and uh, what I uh, titled uh, chapter 10 in the book, The Fight at Pear Trees in 1980, in October of 1980.
0: All right. Well, uh, let, let, before we, I want to get into some of the other personalities. I think Jimmy the Greek will will kind of sort of circle back on because he's kind of an interesting, uh, shall we say, bookmark to all this. But, 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 g- give me a sense of what day to day was like. Right. Um, you know, you're obviously not fighting for the airtime, but you gotta kind of at least somehow write, if you will, at least it, it's scripted form before the, sh- the the light goes on. You got to write for these people, right? So um... my, my job was easy. Okay. Really,
1: when it came down to it because the only thing that they they actually needed script, scripted were lead-ins to uh, the opening whip around, which is when they went from stadium into stadium and Brent w- would say, you are looking live at Soldier Field in Chicago, et cetera. Uh, and so I, I was writing the lead-ins for, for those four stadium shots and then the lead-ins for uh, any uh, uh, tape piece, that they would have to lead into. Uh, And they did several take pieces a show. Uh, They would send Phyllis and Irv out every week with NFL films producing the pieces for them. Uh, And uh, uh, Irv would usually do a a player uh, to talk about game strategy and Phyllis would usually do a star athlete like Roger Staubach and they'd sit in the living room and they'd talk about personal things. And uh, so I, I only had to write the lead ins and be uh, uh, around and um, pay attention to any news that was happening and get that information to Brent uh, if and when that that occurred.
0: Well, let's 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 talk about Brent Musburger, right, because obviously he's the glue of that show. He's, he's the, the anchor, if you will, of that show. Um, maybe just to give us a sense of, of sort of. Uh, of him, obviously, uh, well-known in, in local Chicago circles at the time, uh, Northwestern grad, a, a writer, sports writer, uh, of, uh, of note. Um, was this, I'm trying to remember, was this kind of his first kind of national network kind of gig and how was he to work for and or write for, I'm assuming you didn't have to do much writing for him, if at all.
1: Well, I had to write the, the, the opening, the stadium openings to whip around, uh, he didn't have any features, so. Um, but I I, uh, I wrote those uh, the opening lines every week, um, and you know I bring it to him, and he'd say, oh yeah, this is okay, or uh, he tweak it, you know, or whatever. I mean, he he was not difficult to write for, but Brent uh, was a really interesting guy. I mean, he was uh, more than the, the glue; he was the cog. Uh, that made the whole ship run. Um, Brent actually did not graduate from Northwestern. He was in the same class as Irv Cross. And I believe they did uh, briefly know each other at Northwestern, but Irv kidded him and that Irv actually graduated and Brent left with a year to go to go uh, be a sports writer first in DeKalb. And then uh, he took a job as a reporter sports reporter for the Chicago American and graduated to become a columnist there. And his, uh, his, his career took a tremendous turn in 1968 when um, he was asked by WBBM radio uh, in Chicago to co- see if he, he could cover the Mexico City Olympics. And uh, when they asked him to do it, it was too late uh, for him to get a credential so he borrowed somebody else's and he got in and uh, he cornered uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith right after their famed black uh, black glove salute. Uh, and He cornered them in the athletes quarters which was off limits to the press. He got a 12 minute piece of tape and uh, within an hour or two that tape uh, made it uh, on stations all over the country, and Brent Musburger was famous. And when he got back, WBBM offered him more than twice as much as he was making at the Chicago American as a columnist. Now, Brent loved being a columnist and really didn't want to leave the job. And he thought if he went into his boss, the sports editor, and said, look, you know, they're all, he was making thirteen five. And they offered him like twenty seven, twenty eight thousand. Uh, he went in and hoped, "Well, if they if they offer me ten thousand more, I'll stay." He didn't even want them to match. And he when he went in and told him about it, his boss said, "Are you crazy? Nobody leaves a column." <laughs> and Brent did. <laughs> Brent, Brent had a wife, and they wanted to start a family, and. Brent took the money and he was a natural uh, doing uh, all these different radio shows and opinion uh, pieces for uh, WBBM radio. And within a year, he had moved to to take over as sports director on the TV side. Uh, Van Gordon Sauter was the news director at that time. Uh, Van Gordon Sauter wound up being uh, the head of CBS Sports in 1980. And uh, the head of the network after that. But at that time, Van actually was the one who hired Brent. Van described Brent as a natural. He was just an outright natural. And Brent said, you know, he, he was uh, lucky. It came to him easily. He never took any uh, classes at Northwestern in broadcasting. And uh, he loved the job. And it became evident how good he was at it. Um, In 1973 uh, and four, he did some games as a play-by-play guy for CBS Sports um, NFL games I'm talking about. But he had like the fifth or sixth game and it was hard to get noticed when you were that far down the line. And he did an occasional CBS Sports Spectacular as well. But his big break came when in 1974, Jack Whitaker was hosting uh, the NFL today. Uh, Jack uh, had an assignment to do the Irish Derby that weekend, uh, and they brought in Brent. Now, they were trying to do it live at that point in 1974 with a producer by the name of Bill Fitz, F-I-T-T-S, who had been at CBS uh, Sports since uh, around 1968 or even before that. Uh, he was trying to do it live. He was having a lot of difficulty because as he said, the pace of the show was just too fast for Jack Whitaker. They brought in Brent on this one weekend and he, he, they said Brent for Brent, it was like a kid in a candy store. Everything was easy. Uh, he, he was sens- a sensation and they knew that Brent was the future of the show. But when Whitaker came back, they weren't going to move him out of the position he had. Been so loyal to CBS Sports for so many years. In fact, for many, many of those years, Jack Whitaker was the face of CBS Sports and did and did play-by-play for uh, the f- half of the very first Super Bowl for
0: CBS. So no, that's got, where, it's, yeah, Jack Whitaker, where it's Jack, Jack Whitaker is almost oh, Jack Whitaker is almost like the I, I call him almost like the poet laureate of CBS Sports. He did something. Uh, Whitaker did uh, a great uh, soliloquy at the end of uh, of. The famous uh, uh, Pelé first game uh, in 1975 for the New York Cosmos, uh, literally live on the field after the game had done. And it was basically set the tone for American soccer and its future and stuff. And, and it was he's just he's a wonderful discovery or rediscovery. If, you've, if, if folks out there have never really sort of experienced Jack Whitaker uh, essays and, and commentary, uh, for sure. Uh, a legend.
1: I go into quite a bit of Jack's background as well in the first chapter of the book, which is called CBS Sports, that That's the Way It Was. Um, just to go off on a quick tangent, Jack uh, landed in Normandy uh, the third day of the invasion. Uh, so his dream of being a radio host went down the tubes when he got um, injured twice. When he got back, he got a job as a radio guy in uh, i think it was allentown pennsylvania one day, he was uh, bored to death because all he did was interview the mayor and and the pastor in that town and one day he walked into the newsroom and heard ben hogan uh playing in the murray uh, u.s open in 1950 but it wasn't radio it was a newfangled invention called television and he said to himself, that's what I should be doing. He quit his job the next day, went back to Philadelphia, walked into WCAU and got a job as a sports director. Uh, his best friend at WCAU was Ed McMahon. They dominated the late news show every night at 11 o'clock along with uh, the, the voice of uh, Lambeau Field, uh, um, John Pascenda from NFL Films. And uh, the three of them uh, had the top ratings uh, in Philadelphia until the CBS network bought WCAU, decided they didn't want a half hour newscast. They cut it back to 15 minutes. They cut out sports. They cut out all of Ed McMahon's commentaries. And the two of them thought they were gonna be out of work. And they started the two, Ed McMahon and Whitaker started taking the train to Philadelphia every morning showing up at the ad agencies, which controlled uh, hiring at TV stations. And they tried to get jobs with the networks and they were successful. McMahon got a job as an uh, announcer on a new game show called Who Do You Trust? which had a guy named Johnny Carson as the host. And when Carson got the Tonight Show, he took McMahon with him. And Whitaker got a job with CBS uh, doing uh, analysis on nfl games on sundays and that led to uh, hosting cbs sports spectacular hosting golf hosting tennis for the network and pretty soon he was on the network almost as much as walter cronkite so he was pretty famous by 1974 uh when uh, he they tried to move him to the host of the nfl today and he really couldn't handle that very well and that's when they all knew Brent was the future of the network. Uh, Wessler came in uh, and Wessler moved Brent in and
0: uh, it all became history after that. So so Musburger's the natural, right? How about let's talk about something like Phyllis George, right? Almost the complete opposite. Uh, gender uh, uh, experience, if you will, in sports um, uh, personality. And uh, I have to think, uh, I, but I don't know. Uh, probably need a little bit more sort of writing help and or research and stuff. Or, or was she a natural in her own way, too, in terms of the, the, the subject matter? She
1: was a natural in her own way. Um, when, when she won the Miss America in 1971, uh, Miss America was a huge deal in our country. It was on primetime on Saturday nights. It got enormous ratings. And you have to remember, there were there were only three uh, channels in those days, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And uh, there was no cable, uh, no round-the-clock news, nothing else, no internet. Uh, Phyllis George became famous when she won Miss America. And she was so uh, likable that they brought her back to co-host with Burt Parks. Every year after that. Um, now, when she won, they sent her on a 22 day trip to Vietnam with uh, the next six runners runners up uh, and they did uh, song and dance numbers for the troops. It was kind of uh, uh, really uh, sweet uh, how they entertained the troops, but Phyllis learned to deal with the press during those th- that trip. Uh, she had to answer questions about, should we be in Vietnam? Then when she got back and started doing her annual tour for Miss America, she had to answer questions about the women's lib groups that were following her around because they thought Miss America was an insult to women. Uh, and Phyllis uh, actually wound up talking to them and telling them one, one uh, day, uh, When actually it was in DeKalb, Illinois, she's invited them in, they were outside picketing. And she said, look, uh, I'm I'm a real beneficiary of this. I needed the scholarship money. I wanted to have an opportunity to get into broadcasting and that's what it's doing for me. You know, and I I could understand your point of view, but it's helping me. So she knew how to uh, fight for her own self and she knew how to deal with the press so uh, when she came to new york to try to get a job in broadcasting uh, she was doing some modeling and she met a couple of young producers at cbs named bob stener and tommy o'neill and uh, they became they hit it off right away and they became fast friends and eventually uh, o'neill and stener introduced her to wussler and had recommended her to wussler and Uh, took her to lunch one day, and they were getting along great. And you could see right away how likable she was and how approachable she was. And while she was beautiful, she didn't wear a lot of makeup. Uh, She was kind of like the girl next door, and she was friendly, and
0: uh,
1: she wasn't uh, snobbish. And Wessler really had a great feeling about her. And he asked her the $24 question, what do you know about sports? (laughs) Well, Phyllis was not a, a sports expert to say the least, but she had the right answer. She said, well, I've dated a number of athletes in my time and coming from Texas, of course, I'm a huge fan of the Dallas Cowboys and Hooker Horn, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Cal- uh, Hooker Horn uh, University of Texas.
0: So, uh, uh, TCU, she put it actually, I
1: think TCU, where she graduated. She did not graduate from TCU. Oh, really? I thought. It was no. T- I th- okay, interesting. Um, she, she, um, I, I'd have to go back to uh, see in my book, but she didn't graduate. She. She uh, left to come to New York in 73 or 74. And she got a job, uh, a few jobs modeling. And then she got a job on a show called Candid Camera with Alan Funt. Oh, sure. Syndicated. Uh, And and she was second banana to Alan Funt. And uh, she was terrific on the show, but it really was not her cup of tea. And when Wessler offered her a 13-week contract, to see if she could do uh, uh, work, become a person in the sports world at, on the network, she uh, grabbed at it. Now, Wessler had tried previously to hire Jane Chastain uh, from WTVJ in Miami, where Jane had done a, an awful lot of work and was really a sports expert. But when they put her on a and he put her on an actual NFL game with Don Cricky and Irv Cross. And the, the mail that came in was so negative. Uh, in fact, I went up doing a TV Guide piece on that on Jane and the mail that came in. And the name of the the piece for TV Guide was uh, titled Get That Broad Out of the Booth. That wasn't my choice of words. That was what uh, many of the the letters were saying. And um, Wessler was was, uh, not worried that a woman would work just because it didn't work with Jane. He tried it another way with Phyllis. And they sent her out to interview Dave Cowens of the Boston Celtics. And Cowens didn't want to do the interview. He didn't like doing interviews. And uh, he especially didn't want to do an interview with a woman. And she wouldn't give up. She followed him out of practice. Uh, She jumped in his Jeep. And, uh, I mean, the the team had told him that he had to do the interview. So she let, he let her get in his Jeep and they drove to his uh, place, wherever that was in the country. And the producers followed in their car. And, uh, by the time they got to his place, she had peppered him with so many questions, she was wearing them down. And she started asking him things that weren't on the list of the producer's questions. She started asking him, what would it feel like if you didn't have this anymore? What would it feel like if you were hurt and you couldn't play basketball anymore? You know, what would you do? What would your life be like? Um, where, where would you go? You know, personal stuff. That he had never talked about before, and a sports writer wouldn't dare ask him in 1974, 1975. This was actually uh, the summer, uh, the the early winter of of 75, and um, the the piece wound up being uh, what uh, Melissa Lutke of Sports Illustrated called. The best national piece ever done on Dave Cowens. She had gotten great material out of him, and uh, she was uh, surprised herself at the great reception it got now. They sent her out to do a piece with Jimmy Connors, with Alvin Hayes, and with a few other athletes as well. They were all uh, along the same line, great personal stuff. These guys became relaxed with her, and uh, they knew they had something with Phyllis George. And uh, within uh, a month, uh, Wessler had decided he was going to put her on the NFL today, uh, along with uh, Brent and Irv Cross. And within a year, she was on the cover of People magazine.
0: And the dynamic between, uh, among those four, uh, obviously being the only woman in a sort of very still testosterone-driven kind of sort of culture and stuff, you um, She got along pretty famously with them on the air, and I'm guessing off the air, too, no?
1: Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Phyllis uh, was not, I mean, Phyllis was not going to get shorted on airtime. (laughs) That was for for sure. I mean, uh, Director Bob Fishman said she was the greatest close-up in his uh, history of being a director. Um, And that that didn't
0: irk any of the guys? Frankly, that uh,
1: that 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 didn't hurt them at all. And they they found a way to kind of I hesitate to use the word, but hide her. They didn't make her uh, be involved in any X's and O's stuff. And, uh, you know, after uh, a couple of months, she started to feel comfortable uh, joining the conversation, you know, and, and when they were talking about strategy, uh they'd have the camera on brandon the greek or or brandon herb you know and they wouldn't show phyllis so uh it it was uh not a difficult thing for her to adjust to and america really loved her i mean her her sweetness and her, her uh personality just burst through the the lens and when they wound up going on the road later in the season it became obvious when she was the one everybody ran up to and wanted an autograph from, a uh, Greek was number two, and uh, pretty much uh, nobody asked Brent for his autograph. And uh, Mike Pearl and Bob Fishman thought that Brent might have been a little jealous. Um, but, why, um, why she, but
0: why did she? Uh, I'm sorry. Why did she leave in '78? What was the situation there, and, and, she, and her coming back in '80? I, I forgot sort of the dynamic of that.
1: In 78, she married uh, the head of Paramount Studios. Oh, yeah, Robert uh, Evans.
0: The kid stays in the picture. Bob,
1: right, exactly. Bob Evans. And um, it, it it was uh, strange because people were trying to get her to meet John Y. Brown, who uh, had made a, a killing uh, with uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And they had Uh, arranged a a blind date uh, at uh, Hernando's Lounge in the Beverly uh, um, Wilshire Hotel. Uh, But before they could even sit down and get to know each other, Howard Cosell, who was there, jumped in and sat at their table and interrupted. And then Warren Beatty, who was living in the hotel, did the same. Uh, John White Brown and Phyllis George really never got to know each other. And uh, that a uh, uh, relationship was put aside for uh, a number of years. And instead she wound up meeting Evans and marrying Evans. She was, I believe the fourth of seven wives for Evans. His previous uh, uh, wife was, um, uh, I can't tell, uh, Ally McGraw, the star of The Getaway uh, with Steve McQueen And uh, after McQueen uh, met uh, McGraw, they did make their own getaway, and she left Evans, and uh, he wound up marrying Phyllis. And everybody kind of begged Phyllis not to marry him, because they thought he was not not a good uh, person for her. Uh, So after two months, apparently, she realized that— and uh, I, went, I go into a couple of details in the book, which I won't go into now, but she left Evans and she went back to uh, Texas to live with her mom and dad at home there. And uh, she took some time off the show after the 78 season, and they didn't know uh, if she was coming back or when she was coming back. So that it was
0: her choice, you're saying?
1: Yes, absolutely her choice. Uh, she left on her own, and uh, it was really not a great time for her to leave because the show was uh, uh, just a roller coaster, destroying the competition, and um, they had to find a replacement. They put out a word to all of the the uh, agencies, the modeling agencies, the uh, entertainment agencies. They were looking for a woman to replace Phyllis and uh, Beano Cook called it the greatest talent hunt since Scarlett O'Hara. They wound up hiring Jane Kennedy, who uh, had quite a bit of um, experience in Hollywood uh, and uh, doing guest spots on uh, some uh, TV shows, but uh, she had never done any live TV. Jane Kennedy, for uh, your listeners who are unfamiliar, was an absolutely knockdown, gorgeous uh, woman of color um, who grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area, idolized Jim Brown as a uh, a teenager and got to be friends with Jim Brown when she moved to Hollywood with her husband, uh, Isaac Kennedy, uh, and um, got into the business. She was also friends with ali. they they, were kind of a power couple out there and uh icm would not uh, put her on the list telling her they don't want a a black and they only want someone who knows sports well she went uh her own way to get an interview uh she got to meet somebody who was in the uh, talent coordinator for cbs she got on the list of 16 being interviewed in new york they did a, a whole day of inter- live interviews Brent Musburger came in to work with the 16 candidates and they also brought in a few New York Giants players who uh, they didn't tell uh, the women who they were until uh, right before the interviews and Jane won uh, the co- the contest and um when Jane thought she had the job after going through all the that uh Uh, difficulty of getting ICM to even uh, submit her, she finally won. And uh, then CBS tells her, well, we have to get one more approval. We have to get the approval of the Southern affiliates. And according to Jane, this is according to Jane, they sent the tape of the the, uh, tryout to the Southern affiliates. And when they told this uh, the Southern affiliates that they would move, uh, Jimmy, the Greek to the set to balance the set with two whites and two blacks. They approved her hiring. I could not get anyone else, um, from the show in those days to confirm that story. But, uh, no one denied it either. Um, uh, for the most part, people like Mike Crow and Bob Fishman said they were unaware uh, of this happening. This came from a guy by the name of Frank Smith, who was the the temporary president of CBS Sports at that time. Jane was on the show for two years. Uh, Phyllis wound up uh, going back, uh, running into uh, John Y. Brown again uh, at a later time and meeting him, falling in love with him. On their honeymoon, he uh, mentioned that he was thinking about running for governor. She approved. She went out and campaigned with him. It was easier for her than for him. Uh, And he won, uh, and he became governor of the state of Kentucky. And she was the first lady, and after being the first lady for a year or so, uh, apparently she got a little bored, told her agent uh, that she was interested in going back to CBS. CBS wanted her back on the NFL Today. Uh, Ted Shaker, who is the new producer uh, of the NFL Today, flew out uh, on a private plane with Van Gordon Sauter, and they met at uh, 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 the uh, <coughs> private headquarters of John Y. Brown. It wasn't the governor's quarters, because that was being rebuilt. It was John Y.'s private uh, home uh, and uh, which they described as sumptuous. Uh, and uh, she couldn't have been any nicer. And the only thing she wanted was to be able to do a few more things that she was interested in. And uh, that included uh, more interview time and more time on the air. And uh, they were thrilled to have her back. She uh, lit up the camera. And the one who was going to get shortchanged on uh, time on the air was going to be Jimmy the Greek. And that was 1980.
0: Uh and and how did uh, I mean what was the uh Jane Kennedy leaving after 2 years? I mean I'm sure she was not ex- ecstatic to to leave that job. Although uh she had had a kind of a a, a television acting career prior to and afterwards uh as well. So I did, did she uh, what was the dynamic of her she, leaving the show? She, she didn't uh, I did um
1: uh, a very long interview with Jane uh, and she didn't want to leave and uh, she felt it was unjust. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I certainly could understand them wanting to have Phyllis back on, but Jane didn't do anything wrong. Right. And, um, I, I made a case in the book that they could have easily moved her over to sports spectacular and, to do features for other shows uh and keep her on the payroll and keep keep her on the network i mean she she was an asset um but i i also thought that they felt he having jane around would only remind people uh that by bringing phyllis back they got rid of jane so they made her disappear and in order to make her disappear, they had to pay her entire salary for the next year. And uh, here's a good piece of trivia. Her lawyer was Gloria Allred huh. way back in 1980. Jane uh, went on to do um, a show called "Great Greatest Sports Legends, I think it was called. She did it for six or seven years. And she was terrific at interviewing the, the athletes, and uh, then she went on to raise her own family. All
0: right, I don't want to forget because uh, there's another real pioneer in this mix too. Is is of Cross? Um, again, I think it's really interesting. You look at at sort of the composition of this. Um, there was, there's groundbreaking going on on just about every personality that's part of this show, which just makes it even more groundbreaking in, in aggregate. But here's a guy, uh, you know, a, uh, a former player uh, and somebody, uh, you know, uh, that represents the voice of the player. And I think even at that time, notwithstanding the fact he's African-American, which is also itself pioneering at the time, um, I, I think maybe uh, fair to say an unsung hero of this uh, foursome. Irv, Irv was great. Um, I mean, everybody loved
1: Irv. Irv was the hardest working guy in, in the sports business. Uh, when Irv was a player with the Eagles, uh, NFL Films was located in Philadelphia. And he would go to, over to NFL Films and introduce himself and, and get to look at film of not just the, the opponent for that week, all the teams and he would go in every Monday and uh, he would actually start helping them, uh, design, uh, uh freeze frames and, and, uh, defensive schemes, uh, to show and NFL films loved him and they recommended him to CBS when Irv was in his last year with the Eagles. Uh, he was actually a player coach in his last year and, um, uh, he he became he had had some on air experience with the local station in Philly, doing sports uh, shows at 11:25 uh, at night as part of the newscast, and uh, Irv wound up being the first African American uh, analyst on uh, games for the CBS network, or any NFL game, and he got very very good at it. Um, uh, Uh, I remember Irv telling me a story that when he was a rookie with the Eagles, they asked uh, all the defensive players to write down on a piece of paper what their assignment was, and when they were done, they handed in, they could leave the room. Irv was the last one finished, and everybody else had left the room, and when Irv finally walked up to uh, the coaches in the front, they asked him, if he had a problem and they looked at his paper and he had written down the assignment for all 11 positions instead of just his own. He was that good. And because he was that smart, he said, that's what we did at Northwestern. Uh, And uh, I had to know what everybody did. And I thought that's what you wanted to know. They were so impressed. They made him co-captain and uh, in, in um <clears throat> the beginning of the season, Erv was in the game, and Chuck Benerek was still on the Eagles, and he it was his job to call defensive it was Erv's job to call defensive signals and uh, he he uh, was in the huddle and he looked down he saw Chuck Benerek who was like God in the NFL and he Ben-Erik, in a gravelly voice said, "How about it, Rock, what's it gonna be?" <laughs> and Irv finally gave him the signals, and uh, he he uh, just uh, couldn't get over his uh, luck. Now When Irv was a rookie in 1961, I was a 15-year-old huge Eagle fan, and I would, got a job selling programs at the Eagles games because <clears throat> it, it allowed me to get into, into the stadium free. And after I turned in my uh, my cash, from selling my 50 programs, I could go up to the top step on the 50 yard line and sit and watch the games. And Irv became an idol of mine. And it was really tremendous 16 years later uh, for me to be working with him. And I told him about it and uh, he kidded me about it. And he he actually thought it was a, a great, great thing that we were working together. And when Irv got uh, on the show, um, Tim Brando described, Tim Brando was the first uh, studio host of Game Day on ESPN years later. Tim Brando said the the combination of Brent Musburger and Irv Cross defined the phrase studio chemistry. Their chemistry together was amazing. Uh, Brent could ask Irv a question and Irv would know exactly how to answer it. in in the kind of detail that the fans at home understood. Irv was just a pleasure to have there. And when they sent him out to do these interviews, he was great at that too. Um, He was an unsung hero. And um, it it was a shame that eventually they lost the contract after I think it was uh, 15 or so years to uh, the Fox network and Irv decided to leave the network. He didn't wait. He didn't know that they were going to get the AFC the, uh, four years later. Uh, but Irv was just a great, great person to work with.
0: Yeah. We just lost Irv earlier this year, sadly. And uh, there's a really, uh, uh, he did a, it was a really good uh, uh, an un unsung, I think, uh, uh, biography uh, called Bearing the Cross. He came out with a couple of years ago that was uh, Really interesting. Some really interesting stories about um, uh, not only his television stuff, but his uh, subsequent career in um, uh, sports uh, athletics at the university and collegiate uh, level. But let mm-hmm. me so let me segue from Irv, though, because, again, he 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 came across as no pun as the um, I don't know, the coolest head, I guess, in the room, if you will, given the other three, shall we say, combustible personalities Um yeah, I mean the the Greek was really
1: um, the, the the match that ignited a lot of stuff. I mean, there was one time in nineteen seventy seven, the the Greek thought that John Y. Brown was, um, I think it was seventy seven, seven maybe it was seventy eight. And I think Phyllis was married to John Y. at the time, and the the Greek claimed that John Y. owed him a hundred thousand dollars from the Greeks uh, public relations business. And that the Greek had done work for Kentucky Fried Chicken that he John Y never paid him for. And uh, his beef was with John Y Brown, not with Phyllis. But uh, apparently on the air, uh, the Greek called John Y a son of a bitch. And uh, the first chance Phyllis had to to leave the set, she left the set crying. So that didn't make him uh, very popular. early early on um when uh the greek when phyllis was uh, first came to cbs even before they assigned her to the nfl today they sent her out to do a feature on uh, for the belmont stakes and uh, the greek was uh, walking the backstretch with her and a producer named chuck milton and uh, <clears throat> finally after a while uh, phyllis cooked. Uh, pulled Chuck Milton aside and said, please tell the Greek to stop using the F word in front of me. Uh, She was not a big fan of his, but she got along with him. And uh, eventually things got smoothed over until uh, one uh, Sunday in 1980 when
0: uh, Brent and the Greek went at it. Yeah, let's talk about that. What, what was the situation with that? Because that was obviously, that became a cause celeb too for the show for at least a, it was part of a, it was almost a, a storyline for a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, more than a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, the Greek had a segment called The Greek Fine, where uh, he usually came in with some kind of news. Um, he had been with the network for about five years by then and uh, Brent and the producers were getting a little tired of, of the greek coming in with his news being tips from al davis that were unconfirmed so um he they were not fans of this segment um but this particular sunday in october of 1980 the greek had a legitimate piece of news and that was that notre dame was going to fire their coach um, dan devine and hire uh, of all things a high school coach uh, from uh, Ohio named Jerry Faust. Um, they rehearsed it, 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 it Greek thought this was going to be his big moment on the show. And when they went live with it, instead of just throwing it to the Greek and saying, what do you got for us today? Greek Brent blurted out the news and left the Greek tongue tied without much to say after that, it, it really, it really got the Greek boiled up. And that combined with him always complaining about uh, not enough airtime. When they ran into each other that night at a, a, a place called Pear Trees, it was a bar restaurant on the east side of the, uh, Manhattan. They wound up at the same table. The Greek kept on complaining to Brent. And according to producer Ted Shaker, Brent had enough. and said to the Greek, you know, Greek, I can make you disappear anytime I want. Uh, at that point, the Greek hit Grant, Brent in the face. Some people say he slapped him. Some say he punched him. Whatever it was, they got quickly separated. It was too late. It made the Washington Post the next day. It made the New York papers. Uh, it was a cause celeb. Uh, During the week, they ironed things out. There was too much at stake. The ratings were too high. Uh, Nobody wanted to lose their job over it. Uh, Van Gordon Sauter, who was running CBS Sports at the time, thought it was terrific because he knew he'd get a great rating the following Sunday. Um, I uh, was called in to write that show. uh, And we started off with – phyllis ringing a bell like at a boxing match <laughs> and their gloves on the table in front of both guys and phyllis opened the show by saying round one and uh, eventually they made up and they got along with each other and at least on the surface it seemed that way of course that sunday did get a tremendous rating uh but uh, eight years later uh in um, I think it was August or September of 1988, yep. <clears throat> the Greek appeared on the David Letterman show as a guest. He was there supposedly to talk about the odds for the coming election and uh talk about what was going to be uh coming up on the football season but of course letterman asked him about the fight
0: how uh how are you and brent getting along wasn't there about five years ago you guys got
1: into a scuffle in a bar or something now listen we've been together for almost 13 years we're entitled to one argument i mean i you you have that many arguments with your wife every week <laughs> no brent said something he shouldn't have said and i did something i shouldn't have done he and I are the closest of friends. I saw him on
0: your show. But somebody somebody did get punched, right? Well, it was about even. <laughs> All right. A little punch out. Did you hear that, Paul? We're entitled to one punch out. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the man you see every, I guess, Saturday and Sunday now, right? Well, Here. Saturday
1: and Sunday this week, right? And yeah. next week also. Jimmy the Greek. Pleasure to meet you, Jimmy. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Well, the Greek said, well, if, you know, it was about even. when when Letterman pressed him about it. He said it was about even. Of course, it wasn't even. Greek got in the only punch. Uh, And Letterman said, but somebody did get punched out, didn't they? And the Greek said, no, it was about even. Uh, We're the best of friends now. And, um, you know, even uh, every guy and his wife have a fight every once in a while. This is one argument we had in 13 years. And that sounded like a pretty good case the Greek made. Two months later, the Greek was fired for his controversial comments on Martin Luther King weekend in Washington, D.C. So, I, And Brent did not stand up for him. Brent, in fact, wanted him out, uh, according to Ted Shaker. And uh, it turned out they weren't the best of friends after all.
0: Okay, so... Uh, obviously a lot of this uh, tension, right? So it's interesting. It doesn't seem like Irv Cross and, and the Greek had any real beefs, but I mean, or maybe maybe that was also under the surface too and maybe sort of not there, but I mean, I, no. clearly he seemed to be... Not, not, not at all.
1: The, okay. Nobody uh, had a beef with Irv Cross.
0: Yeah, that, so that's interesting because uh, it's here, here you've got two sort of megawatt stars in the show uh, kind of crossing swords, if you will, with the Greek. What what was... Uh, Let's let's talk about his his ultimate uh, uh, self implosion. We don't have to get into the gritty details of it, but what was it about his personality, Jimmy the Greeks? Because it's clear that um, I don't want to say he was punching above his celebrity weight, so to speak, right? But it does feel like he kind of didn't sort of care about other people's perceptions of him. He was uh, having lunch in
1: uh, Duke Siebert's restaurant in Washington D.C. Uh, because. They they were taping a piece and the camera broke. So it was his bad luck that the camera broke and he wound up at this famous restaurant having lunch on Martin Luther King weekend. It was uh, right before the last game CBS was doing that year and his contract was about to run run out that Sunday. It was uh, up in the air whether they were going to renew his contract. He was going to turn 70 that year. And a lot of people thought CBS was just gonna let it lapse and they weren't gonna invite him back. But uh, when a local reporter came around with a camera crew asking people, uh, what did Martin Luther King mean to them? And he came up to the Greek and the Greek got into this long soliloquy about um, the slave owners uh, breeding their slaves to be bigger and stronger um, and so they could do more work, and that's why uh, blacks are bigger and stronger and faster in the NFL. Um, it got uh, worse than that, and uh, when the guy put it on the air, uh, it, it was like a wildfire across the country, and uh, by that night, uh, the head of the CBS broadcast group, Gene Jankowski, had ordered the Greek to be fired.
0: Yeah, and I think even Irv Cross. So it's interesting. I think in retrospect, I mean, Irv Cross. I think on the there was a thirty 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 for thirty doc that uh, was, was about uh, Snyder's life and stuff. And and it's interesting that Cross I, I sort of went out of his way to say he never really even considered Snyder to be a racist. And there was, and I think Snyder certainly was apologetic. But I think that there was certainly a, a, a Boatload of ignorance, I guess, in, in not only the comments but also the way he sort of framed them. That didn't mm. help his case either.
1: You know, uh, he wasn't a racist. Jesse Jackson came to uh, uh, try to get help him get his job back. You know, what he said actually was printed in Sports Illustrated a few years earlier. Uh, <clears throat> these were controversial comments, but they weren't necessarily racist comments. As Phil Mushnick of the New York Post put it, he said what he said wasn't necessarily wrong, he just said it indelicately. And uh, I would tend to agree with that. But the Greek was gone, he was out, uh, and uh, CBS Sports moved on. Um, uh, Brent was, uh, uh, read a statement uh, on the the field uh, two days later, uh, that they had fired the Greek. You know, on Friday afternoon here in Washington, our former colleague Jimmy the Greek made some regrettable and offensive remarks for which he has apologized. Yesterday, CBS issued a statement disassociating itself from those remarks. It goes without saying that his comments do not reflect in any way the thinking or attitudes of the rest of us here at CBS Sports. While we deplore the incident this weekend, we are saddened that our 12-year association with Jimmy had to end this way. And the NFL today will continue live from RFK Stadium in Washington in just a moment. And uh, everybody seemed to be pretty happy as they moved forward. Uh, Brent only lasted two more years at CBS Sports. And the reason for that was... Uh, In 1990, they were negotiating a new contract for him. He was making $2 million a year at the time, and they weren't afraid to pay him more. What they wanted Brent to do was to ease up and give some of the events that he hosted for CBS to other people. They had Jim Nance in the bullpen, they had Greg Dumble in the bullpen, they had James Brown in the bullpen, Uh, they had Pat O'Brien who was a very competent host in the bullpen uh, and Brent was hosting all these events, the NFL, the NCAA uh, baseball, which was about to come to CBS, uh, the masters, uh, the U S open, the Belmont stakes. And he apparently, aco- according to Shaker and Neil Pilsen, he wouldn't give any of them up. And that's why they thought they needed to start to develop these other people. And uh, they decided not to renew Brent's contract. It leaked out at uh, the Final Four. And uh, a lot of the sports writers thought it was an April Fool's joke. But it was true. And uh, Brent wound up going to CBS, I'm sorry, uh, ABC, ESPN for the next 27 years.
0: Okay, and I, I know you got to run, so here's the last question. And I appreciate all of this time because this has been absolutely fascinating. And obviously, we're going to tell people to not to get the book and, and and devour it because this is just so much we could go into. But obviously, a lot of this point became moot right when CBS lost uh, their NFC rights uh, to Fox uh, later in the 1990 what three right uh, right 1993 late late 93. Put though this uh, so this show, frankly, in context, right? Obviously, it's a, it's a it's for people of today's generation. They sort of don't, maybe to understand so again, sort of how crucial and and game changing, literally and figuratively, this show was. But um, can you, in your retrospect, you were in the room, so to speak? Um, c- can you kind of encapsulate sort of how important and uh, changing this show was to kind of. Uh, change what it meant to sort of broadcast NFL football because I, I think it's lost on on a whole bunch of people today just how crucially uh, uh, cha- uh, you know game changing this this show was. And prior to this show, there were only three channels. The, it,
1: nothing was live. Uh, it would if it, the, the the pregame show would come on the air. Everything was pre taped. You, you were an NFL film. You were star for information. Uh, there, w- there was no internet. Uh, there was no sports phone even. Uh, there was no place to get news. You had to wait for the paper. If you wanted highlights of other games, you had to wait until Howard Kozell presented them on Monday Night Football's halftime. And the NFL today, besides going live and besides uh, doing these fabulous Uh, stories and interviews and having these tremendous personalities and having uh, uh, talking about uh, gambling and and betting on the games for the first time. Besides the show being this exciting, they gave uh, America highlights of other games for the very first time, same day highlights. They found a way to do it. Uh, it. It was an amazing show. It was as if you were seeing live television for the first time. Back in the early 60s, seeing color TV for the first time. That's what it felt like.
0: All right, all right, all right. The book that must be gotten. It is fantastic. It is called You Are Looking Live. How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting. It is written by our guest this week, Rich Podolsky. It is forwarded by Jim Nance and it is available wherever books are found as of October 15th. Uh, depending on when you're listening to this little show, it's either available for pre order or it's available for regular order. However, you choose to get it, just get it, will you? Uh, we uh, encourage you perhaps to get it through uh, our web link on our website. At GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, just search up this episode number 233 with Rich Podolsky and uh, you will find a convenient link to Amazon and we'll get a couple of referral shekels of love. We appreciate that. And of course, you'll get the book about as humanly uh, fast as possible, uh, either in conventional hardcover form or in a Kindle version, which will literally pop up in your device in seconds. Um, But either way you get it, just get it, will you? It's a it's a it's a. A romp. It's a fantastic read. So many great details, so many unknown little stories and tidbits. Uh, even the most diehard of NFL and television fans uh, will uh, be amazed at uh, the various behind the scenes isms uh, from Rich in this wonderful book. It is published by Lions Press. Hey, and while you're there uh, searching around for the book and, and adding it to your, uh, your uh, shopping cart there, two other great books I can recommend that uh, are also awesome in their own ways. uh, In the realm of music that Rich has written in the past, one's called, uh, is the history, uh, the biography actually, of Don Kirshner. Yes, he of Don Kirshner's rock concert fame. It's called Don Kirshner, The Man with the Golden Ear with a forward by uh, Tony Orlando, of all people. Uh, I believe Tony Orlando's now got a a weekly radio show on WABC AM uh, 77 in New York right after the Cousin Brucey show on Saturday nights. How about that? Uh, the other one's a uh, biography of Neil Sedaka. It's called Neil Sedaka Rock and Roll Survivor with a forward by none other than Elton John. I mean, so Rich knows what he's doing with this stuff. They, these are all fantastic re- reads. And uh, whether you're into sports or music, Rich has got you covered with all three of those titles. Uh, and feel free, like I said again, to, to go through our link uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com to order such and many copies of such. Why not? Makes great gifts. You know, uh, why not? Uh, while you're on our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, you, of course, we will see every past, present, and we think future episodes of this show. Uh, of course, the best, most efficient way is to subscribe or follow a feed in your favorite podcatcher or podcast app. Uh, but uh, somehow, if that eludes you or you want to just, you know, tease a couple of friends into maybe, you know, uh, a little sampler platter of all the hell of every stinking, stinking episode on our website. There's a nice search engine there, pretty robust. You can kind of search up a team or a league or uh, a name or something, whatever, and you know, God forbid, you may actually find something either that you didn't know we did or your friends might just uh, be tantalized into subscribing or following us as well. So however you bring people there, that's a great place to start. It's kind of a gateway, if you will. Uh, and it's also the place where you find all the other information about this show, like our social media feeds, we're on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, would you like to send us some email? Well, please write, go right ahead. Yeah, we're at Tim. No, sorry. We're at hello at Good Seats Still Available. My name's Tim, but the email address, that's not going to help you at all. It's a hello, hello at Good Seats Still dot com. There you go. And uh, what else? Oh, hey, we have an e- uh, email newsletter that we send out each and every week, usually on Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings, depending on uh, how um, efficient we are in uh, putting our pieces together each week. Uh, and what do you get with that? Well, it's um, you give us your name and your email address. That's it. We don't share it with anybody. Uh, we'll give you a little bit of a head start, you know, a couple hours ahead of time as to what we're going to be talking about that that week and maybe give you a little bit of an early access to said uh, to said show. Uh, and let's see, uh, two things we want to do before we, uh, we wrap up. Uh, one is, of course, uh, thank kindly our good pal, Dr. Jerry Payne in Atlanta, GA. Thank you, sir, for all your work this week, of course. Cannot do this show without your help. And uh, we're going to leave you, of course, as we try to do when, when it's appropriate, some musical um, send-off. And uh, I think probably the most uh, appropriate way to send you off Uh, I think it makes sense. Why not? How about the full-fledged NFL Today theme from back in the day? Now, just so you know, uh, it's actually called, the official name of this theme, it's called Horizontal Hold. And it's by a guy named Jack Trombe, which is actually not a real name. It's actually an anagram or a a, a, a pseudonym uh, of somebody named Jan Stockert. I don't even know if that's even a guy. It could be a female for all I know. Uh, But whatever, um, it is that person uh, in the mix putting it all together. And and, and in actuality, it's actually a a, a production music bed from a, a music library known as the DeWolf Music Library. So there you go. More trivia than you ever wanted to know. But let's just regale in it in all its three and a half minutes of stereophonic glory. Let's send you out and we'll see you next week. Here it is, the official and full original NFL Today theme. Goodbye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.